Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Um, i got to ask if you would just pray for me. My, uh, you guys know I wrestle with insomnia, but it's gotten so much worse in the last few weeks, and uh, I just can't sleep anymore. I don't, I, something's happening to me. So my daughter challenged me on the way to church this morning. Dad, try to get to bed before midnight every day this week, and so I'm, I'm going to really try to do that, but i got to ask you to pray for me that God would knock me out before midnight. I don't know what's going on with me, but uh, I just can't sleep. So um, pray that I, I would be strengthened this morning as well for just preaching the word and that this week God would just knock me unconscious. Would you do that? I mean, just pray. If you're still awake around midnight, say, Lord, knock him out. And I think the Lord will do something amazing this week. Well, this morning, the title of the message is A Sin is Born. A Sin is Born. And I think it'll become clear to you why I've titled the message this way. Um, James is turning his attention to the mechanics, the spiritual mechanics by which sin rises up in our lives. The text is from James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, and here's what it reads. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, I know not everyone here is a parent, but if you have children, you know this is true. Ask any child that are caught being naughty, why did you do what you did? Just ask any kid. Why did you do it? You will listen to a thousand reasons why none of them will be because they have a sinful heart. It's always going to be because something external to them made them do it. Well, it was because they hit me first. It was because whatever the cookie was just laying there and it looked so happy to be eaten by me. And so I just ate it. Uh, It's because you didn't feed me enough at dinner. That's why I had to supplement my diet with extra dessert. I mean, they'll, they'll make all kinds of reasons why. And it's very rare to hear a child just go, it's because I have a sinful heart. I just wanted to do wrong, and I, I just couldn't resist, and I did it. And we laugh about that, but it's not only kids who have a really hard time owning up to what they've done. I think it's in human nature. In fact, Genesis 3 records for us that from the very first sin in all of human history, it has been our way to pass the buck, to pass the blame. Look at these verses. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's as if from the very start, and by the way, don't you just love 
this, this painting by an artist named Domenichino. It was painted around 1625. And it's so perfect. Look at Adam's face. It's so perfectly captured. What do you want me to do? I mean, I thought that was a modern kind of thing. But even in the 1600s, people, hey, hey, it ain't my fault. Look at her. What do you want me to do? I just love that painting. And I think it captures so well the spirit of blame shifting. It's in our nature. The man blames the woman. And look how he says he doesn't just blame the woman, but he really is blaming God. Hey, the woman, I was minding my own business, happy as a pig in mud. You put this chick here, and she made me do it. I wouldn't have even had a problem if you had. He was real happy when he first met her, but when he gets caught, it's her fault for everything. And it's God's fault for putting her there. And then he turns to the woman, she goes, the devil made me do it. So he goes to the serpent. I wonder what the serpent said. I mean, what do you want? I'm a snake, you know, like, what's the devil going to say, right? So, so the ser- I, what does the serpent say in defense of himself other than it is what it is, I guess? Unfortunately, the blame game isn't only restricted to passing the blame to other people or to circumstances. I think that it's actually a very common impulse when we find ourselves in trials and when we find that we haven't stood up to that test, it's very common for us to blame God. Now, many of us who grew up in the church are too superstitious to come right out and say, it's God's fault, but that's what we're feeling. That's often what we're thinking, that we blame God for our sins. And if it wasn't so common, I don't think James would have started his teaching in this passage with this admonition, when you're tempted, stop blaming God. It's not his fault. That's not where sin comes from. Blaming God for our sin, I think, takes a lot of different forms. One common form I've heard is, well, God's sovereign. He predestines everything. So he must have predestined this moment of moral failure in my life. Another version of blaming God is, you know, it's God's fault for putting me in this impossible situation. He knows I love sweets, and then he gives me a job at a cookie factory. What does he want me to do? Sometimes you say, it's God's fault because he gave me these passions and desires. He wired me in a way that I can't fight it. Why did he make me like this? Why did he make me love this stuff so much? Now, in the end, we are taking some of the blame, but we're shifting a lot of it over to God because, after all, he's in charge, isn't it? And we see things like, it's ridiculous. You're in charge. You should have done better. What is this situation that I find myself in? The Scottish poet Robert Burns famously put it this way in in a poem. He said this, Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. I think that's a very common sentiment for us. That I've got these voices talking to me, but where do they come from? You're the one who has formed me with these passions that are so wild and strong And because you made me this way, my own heart has led me astray more than once. And so James begins by simply saying this. Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. When we say this in our hearts, what we're describing is a distorted picture of God. What we're saying is God has all authority And he's being irresponsible in the way he uses it. 
that the God we follow actually intentionally puts obstacles in the path of his people, hoping to test them and seeing if they will stumble. It's as if we believe that what God is doing is playing tricks on us. Let's see how much they can take before they bite the dust. You know, can you imagine if you're teaching your child how to walk and you keep tripping them? You're like, <laughs> they stink at walking. Like, that'd be so cruel. But that's the distorted picture we sometimes have of God is he's doing that to us. We're trying so hard to just innocently learn to walk and he keeps tripping us up. And what's his problem? Why would he do that to us? Now, when you're feeling that, it's understandable why you're feeling that because it does sometimes feel like what you're struggling with is bigger than your ability to fight it. But as that desire, that feeling makes you want to blame God, James says, stop it right there. Because even though that's what you're thinking and that's what you're feeling, it can never, ever be true. I know that's what you feel, but it simply, simply cannot ever be true of God. It is just not in his nature to treat his children that way. I know that from where we stand, that's the easiest possible interpretation some of the time. But God says very clearly to us, and he says to us in his word, I would never, ever, ever do that. I would never do that. What's interesting is that the word for trial here and the word for temptation are actually the same Greek word. That the same word describes both situations. I think, and this is a a bit of a a roundabout way of looking at it, but I'm going to try to say it as simply as possible. Every trial we face, every trial we face can either be a test that proves the reality of our faith and allows us to grow spiritually, that's one side, or it can be a temptation where our faith is tested and we come up short and we decline spiritually. Every time we face struggles, one of those two outcomes is certain. We will rise to it and find that, my goodness, I actually have enough faith to handle this. God has put that in me. And so we grow through that trial. Or in that trial, we are waging war within ourselves. We're shaking our fists at God. And we don't have the faith to get through it. And it weakens our faith. Success or failure, then, seems to hinge upon whenever we face troubles of any kind, Do we instinctively run to God as our refuge or do we shake our fists at God as if it's his fault we're in this problem to begin with? Another another way of saying it is this. Whether a trial will produce spiritual growth or spiritual weakness in you depends on whether you will walk towards God or away from God whenever trouble strikes your life. And probably most of us have a default reaction. Whenever stuff gets bad, we have a natural disposition. Oh, man, here we go again. And either your heart will say, God, help me, or God, seriously, give me a break here. How long is this going to go on? Why do you single me out? Why does this always happen to me? And do you see how there's two very different dispositions, and you probably side more naturally with one of those reactions than the other? And that has a lot to do with whether we will grow through our trials or our trials will crush us. Now, listen to what he says here. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. If God is not the source of our sin and our temptation, where does it come from? Where does it come from? 
What James does here is he places the responsibility squarely on our shoulders. In fact, even though he will later on talk about Satan's role in our spiritual warfare, he doesn't mention Satan until chapter 4, verse 7. It's, it's, you, you would expect him at this point to go, well, the devil does have a part. He's always after you. He's trying to make you trip up. But he doesn't even mention the devil. And that silence is glaring because what he says is, I know you want to find someone else to blame for all this junk in your life. But he begins by saying, you have to pause right now and realize that sin starts from your own heart. It begins with you. See, the desire to blame, that instinct to blame someone else, that shifting of responsibility shows us that we want to think of sin as something external that makes us behave a certain way. But what James says is, no, it's not that. It is that there's something inside of us that the world hooks into and and we're dragged into it. And that's why we sin. It's not that the world or the devil or they made me do it but there is something seriously wrong inside of me that gives birth to sin. Now, what he says that thing is, is desire. Depending on which translation you read, it'll be translated lust or evil desire, but I think really just desire is really the best word for it. And it's a word that in Greek doesn't just say desire like, I desire some froyo after church today. It's not that casual a thing. The word in Greek If you were to literally translate it, it means over-desire. It's a desire not just for inappropriate things, but a desire that is inappropriately strong. It is so intense, it eclipses all other desires. You you know, like, have you ever been weirded out by a friend who, like, everybody likes something, but they like it a little too much. You're like, what is your problem, seriously? Why do you like it so much? And it's a little unusual to see somebody who has a normal desire that is now distorted to become obsessive. That's really the word we're describing here, is that inside of each person are a number of desires that are easily distorted to become far greater than they should be. So it's no longer for us just no matter, oh, I like this, I enjoy it, but it's I need to have it. I have to have it. I dream about it. I think about it all day long. Pastor Tim Keller, who pastors in in New York City, he said this. This over-desire is not just wanting bad things, but wanting things too badly. I think that's a very simple way of putting it. It's not just wanting bad things. Listen, most of our desires that go awry are not desires for bad things. We have a desire for food. We have a desire for sex. We have a desire for sleep. We have a desire for money, for comfort. What normal human being doesn't want these things? Is there anyone who goes, I love starving? I love sleeplessness and itchy clothing and bad-tasting food. Nobody likes those things. Everybody has these normally wired desires for these things. It's not that what we want is bad, but the, the degree to which we want it has now crossed a line so that if we listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a very famous German pastor, here's what he said about it. At the moment that we are in the grips of the object of our over-desire, at that moment... Here's what he says. It's not so much that that desire makes us hate God, but that it makes us forget God. You don't sin because you go, God, I hate you. I'm going to, be, I'm going to stab you in the back. How's that, God? That's rarely the profile of the person who sins, but it's that I'm now faced with the object of my really true deepest desire, 
And I just forgot God. That's why in the movies you often hear, listen, I still love you too. It's just a fling with her. I, I, it didn't mean anything. I still love you. And the, the woman's going, I don't even know how that could be possible. How could you have an affair with someone else and claim to love me? And what that person is saying is, it's not so much that I set out to stab you in the back. It's that I wanted something so badly, I wasn't getting it from you. And when I found the person who wanted to give it to me, I totally forgot you. I know you're important. I know I made vows. I know all these things. But at that moment, I completely got my loves twisted around. And I just lived in a world where you don't matter. I put you away. And I focused only on this thing, and it became my whole world. It became my value system. That really is a helpful way of thinking about temptation. Is It's not so much coming from a place of hating God or hating others or hating ourselves, but of a love that is in us that becomes so distorted in its intensity and its focus and its priority that we forget every other legitimate love that belongs in our heart. We betray people that should be able to trust us. We betray a God who has only ever been good to us. We betray ourselves because we're in the face of the thing which we most want, and it overpowers us. Now listen to this as well. James says, um, I don't know how, something's wrong with my slides here. They're all twisted out of order here. So here's what it says here in this verse. Each one, when he is tempted by his own... De- Let me just skip ahead. I don't, I'm missing about like three slides here. What happened? Okay, let's, let's start with this one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Now, that word, those words, lured and enticed, anyone hearing them in James's day would have immediately recognized those words as coming from the world of trapping or fishing. Trapping is different than hunting. Hunting is a little bit more um, manly. You got to go after the animal. You got to outsmart it. Um, trapping is a little different. It's very passive. You just set a trap, and you're you're trusting on the animal's own lack of self-control. And that's really what fishing is. I, I mean, can you imagine if like um, if like there were strange aliens that fished for our children? And they, they, put down lines with Nintendo 64, you know, N- Nintendo games or, uh, or DSs or iPods, and, and the kids are like, wow, there's this thing falling out of the sky. You think it'd be so stupid to, to go for it, but fish do it all the time. It's unnatural. This piece of food just drops down from the heavens, and you go after it. But the fish, knowing, and a lot of fish, that's why so, you're so proud to catch a big fish, because that fish has outsmarted fishermen for like 10 years, and you got them. The bigger the fish the better you are because you lure that smart fish out of years of evading fishermen, I'm the one who got them. When you think about trapping and fishing, what you're counting on is the animal wants the bait so badly that even though it's worried, even though its alarms are going off, it can't help himself. Trapping and fishing is basically assisted suicide for animals. You're counting on this animal wanting the thing more than it wants to be alive, and it throws caution to the wind, and it will take the object of its desire, and it will forfeit its life for doing it. Now, that just sounds stupid when you think about it as animals or as fish, but that is what we're doing all the time. We want this so badly that we're like, oh, come on. 
That's just too obvious. Look at it. It's, it's obviously bait. And yet, knowing that, like, but I still got to have it. I have to. And you hear all the warnings. You hear all the statistics. You've seen other people bite the dust because of this. And yet, you can't help it. You remember how bad you felt the last time you gave in. And yet, you can't help it. The, the lure is so strong that you are literally killing yourself in order to get it. That's the nature of temptation. And that's why James uses this very powerful language. There is a desire, a distorted desire in each of us that is so open and vulnerable to the world that when the world gets its hooks in there, we become virtually powerless. And he's, he's attacking that right away. And what he says is, it's a little different for each person. That's why he points out each person has their own desire. I think temptations are tailor-made to the individual. Have you ever felt like somebody's pouring out their heart about something they're weak to, and you just don't get it? You're like, I, I've never struggled with that. You know, you know, you know like, like, like people who really love money, I just don't get that. But then when someone goes, I played Xbox till like five in the morning, I'm like, dude, I totally get it. I'm, I totally get it. Some people, they can't stand when a major blockbuster movie comes and goes and they didn't watch it. Other people, I, like me, I, it bothers me that I didn't see that movie. Why didn't I see that movie yet? It was out there. I should have watched it because I love movies. And my wife is like, it's a movie, stupid. Who cares? I care. And, and in our marriage, what's interesting is the things that obsess her, I could care less about. She's always got to have yummy, yummy food. I don't care how yummy the food is. I appreciate it if it tastes good, but as long as it, it fills my belly, that's all I need. I can eat the same stuff every day. She's got to have clothing that's so comfortable. When She, she could be blind and still buy clothes because she does it by the feel of the fabric. <laughs> this is going to be really comfortable. It's hideous, but it's so comfortable. So I don't struggle. But then I struggle with things. She goes, I don't get why you would rather play a video game than sleep. Are you stupid? Apparently I am because I can't help myself. I just can't. And do you realize the specificity of this over-desire? I mean, look at all these different objects of our desire. And as you look at the screen, this isn't all the things that draws. But even now looking at it, your eye immediately will go to one of these eight quadrants, won't it? You're like, oh, yeah, that's the one. I have never wrestled with substance abuse like, oh, I want to know how that pill makes me feel. I don't care. That's because my life rocks and I'm, I'm high all the time. All right? <laughs> but some people, they see the pill. And they just got to know what it's going to make them feel like. They can't help themselves. And so that's why what we're saying is because it is so specific to each person, we should never make light of another person's struggles. We should never pretend, why, why are you so weak just because you're strong because you got your own junk? You'll end up on that hook one of these days and the other person's like, gosh, you're so stupid. What? Why would you fall for that? I don't know. It just looks so good to me. And that's, uh, so we're not just saying don't make light of others' struggle, but we're also saying don't make light of your own. Know the areas where you have a distorted over-desire and never become careless in that area. If you're a mouse, you should be absolutely cynical about every unexpected piece of cheese that crosses your path. <laughs> All right, let me see here. 
walk around it about a thousand times because you are so weak to cheese, that's how they're going to get you. Don't ever downplay how powerful your over-desire is. We, we tend to do that. We're so cavalier about the things we're weak to. I can handle it. You can't. You really can't. And men especially, you've got to hear me, because we, we can handle everything, right? We're weaker than women by a thousand percent. You've got to know that that chest-thumping pride and confidence is unwarranted. In the area of your over-desire, you have no power except Christ. You can't handle it. If you could, it would never work. You'd never fall to it. But we do time and time and time again. And here's what he says then. He shifts now from hunting and fishing language to the language of sexual reproduction. And this is so insightful because he says, this is really the way sin rises in our lives. That that over-desire, when it has tasted and flirted and obsessed with its object of its desire long enough, will eventually conceive and give birth to sin. Here's what I think he's saying. Do you know that moment where you've been thinking about something, thinking about something, thinking about something, and you just go, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You know, in seventh grade, it started with a small thing as, I'm going to walk across that gym and ask that girl to dance. I wanted to so badly. I'm just sitting there on the boy's side going, I'm going to do it. I should totally do it. And my friend's like, dude, just, you should totally do it. And I did it. I walked across the gym. You know that long walk? <laughs> Everyone in the school is looking at you, and you're walking right toward one specific girl. And I asked her, and she, I, I remember her name was Maria. And she, she said, no, <laughs> the long walk back, but right, it's so pathetic. First girl I ever asked to dance shot me down, but it was that moment that was so energizing where I said, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then I should just, that's it. I'm going to actually do it. And I got up and it's that moment James is talking about where you're planning on doing, it, you know, you should do, you're thinking about doing it. And then you finally make that faithful. You cross that threshold from I'm going to do it to I'm doing it. I want it to, I'm gonna. Do you get it? You've been there at that moment where you're, you're, you're going back and forth. Should I, should I not, should I, should I? And then you click purchase on the, that website. I'm going to do it. We're going to get it. I remember when we got our van. It was a day like that. We were wondering, should we get another one? The, the one we had was causing problems. Should we, should we not? And then we just went to the deal one day and we came home with the van. And it's that moment that plays out again and again and again in our lives. I want to, I want to, I want to. Forget it. I'm going to. That moment of decision is conception. That's when the sperm meets the egg and bam, you're gonna, something's going to happen now. Because once that happens, you don't get to control the process anymore, do you? It's, it's coming. It's already decided it's going to come out now. Now, before a baby is born, after it's conceived, what happens, everybody? You guys take biology? So after conception, which is just two cells becoming this thing, what's going to happen? It grows like crazy before you meet it for the first time. Listen to this. You want to talk about weight gain. A baby from conception to birth increases its weight three billion times. Three billion times. If a baby kept growing at the same rate that it does in the womb for its first year of life, it would weigh as much as the Sears Tower at age one. It's like 445 billion pounds. 
That's insane to me. That's how fast it's growing. And guess what? It's growing that way because pregnant women eat like horses at a trough, don't they? I mean, like, <laughs> pregnant women eat a lot. I was amazed when my wife was how much, when she wasn't puking, she was eating like it was going out of style. Like, is nuclear war coming? I don't know, but oh, shoveling it. Why? Because she's not just eating for herself. She's making a person. She has, she's justified in eating that because as she eats, she's creating a nervous system and circulatory system and a skeletal system. All that is going to make a person. And as she eats, everything she eats is feeding this thing that I haven't met yet. It looks invisible at first, but after a while, the baby bump starts coming out, doesn't it? And you realize there's a thing growing in there. And after a while, after how long? <laughs> Thank you. Nine months. After nine months, it can't stay in its room anymore. It's got to come up. Because it's grown and grown and grown to the point where it cannot be contained any longer. It's going to burst out. And that's the way it works often in us is we, we start thinking about something, thinking about something, and it grows and then we don't dismiss it. We tenderly touch it longer. We flirt with it. We fantasize about it. We're feeding that thing so that it keeps growing. Here's a way I, I can visualize this for you. It starts with just casual interest, and then it builds to serious attraction, and then you cross over into obsession, and after that is decision time. That's the way it works. Oh, look at that. Ooh, seriously, look at that. Oh, I can only look at that. I'm going to have it. That's the progression in our hearts. That's the gestation of a sin, is it's so much is going on in here before it comes out there. So when we say things like, I don't know where that came from. I don't normally do this. It came out of nowhere. Really, it doesn't come out of nowhere. You are feeding that thing and feeding that thing, and pretty soon it can't stay trapped in your imagination anymore. It's got to come out. It's just got to come out. Virtual online stuff doesn't stay virtual and online forever. Eventually, you're not content to look at pictures or chat with somebody. It's going to burst out into the real world because that's the nature of the human heart. It can flirt only so long, but then as you feed this thing, it's going to be born eventually. And that's the way it works. And once that sin is born, once you break the ice and you do it the first time, well, just like a baby, once it's out, it doesn't stop growing, does it? Do you know in the first two years, a baby quadruples its size? In fact, they say by the time a person is two years old, they are half their adult height. That kind of freaks me out when I think about it, but that's true. You're half your adult height at around age two. Once a sin is born, it will keep growing. And James says, when it is fully grown... It will bring forth death. What he's saying is when a sin is born and it is not restrained, it will keep growing. It will evolve. It will take on a life of its own and it will not be content to stay in the shadows. Here's what I think it means about sin growing. It no longer is content to stay hidden, but it will be done out in the open. It will come out right in front of everybody. What used to be shameful and hidden we're now proud of. Here it is. This is what I am. 
You will also not be so easily satisfied. The things that got you excited at first will be boring because that's also human nature. We bore very easily. And we're, we're, we're looking at things and going, yeah, it used to get my goat up. Now I don't even care anymore. I need something more intense. I need something more different. I need variety, intensity. And that's another way that our sin grows is it's not content to stay as a baby sin. It wants more. It has a voracious appetite and it keeps evolving and evolving. What once was an isolated act as it keeps growing becomes a habit and then it becomes a way of life. A person might say, I used to look at porn, now I'm a complete pervert. I don't know where it happened. I do because it came out and then it just kept growing. Nothing was done to restrain it. And when you don't restrain it, it will not stay where it is. Like all things in life, it will grow and it will grow often without your permission, or without your intentionality. And when it does grow, when it's fully grown, what James says is that it will bring forth death. There's a good picture. <laughs> Left unrestrained. It's just going to keep growing. And when it grows like that, it's going to bring forth death. Most of us, when we sin, we sin under the illusion that it's going to make us feel more alive. I'm going to really enjoy myself. This is going to make me feel better. I'm going to have a lot of fun doing this. Most of us sin in the pursuit of life, don't we? I mean, look at the cigarette ads. I always find it hilarious that, that you know, even with menthol cigarettes, they talk about cool and fresh. It's smoke, man. <laughs> it's like 900 degrees and it's smoke. But they use adjectives like cool, fresh, light, menthol, minty. What is minty and light about smoke? But that's what we do. We sell everything because we're tapping to everybody's desire, as distorted as it is, for feeling more alive. That's why we do it. I want to feel alive. People are hopelessly addicted to gambling. They're losing their shirts, mortgaging their homes to give donations to a casino that's already rolling in dough. Please take more of my money so that I can feel the thrill of losing everything. That's really what a gambling addiction is about. I just get so excited losing my money. And it's so stupid at an intellectual level. You can sit outside of that and look at a person and go, look at what you're doing. But the person's not doing it because they love losing money. They're doing it because that risk, that moment of I could win it all or lose it all, makes them feel alive. Isn't that why we do everything? Jonathan Edwards once wrote, if to paraphrase it, really paraphrase it, we only ever do what we want to do. That's what human free will is. That we never live under coercion. Even when we're under coercion, we're choosing ultimately what we want to do. Even when someone's got you at gunpoint, you want to stay alive longer than you want to not do what they're making you do. We follow our hearts. We are creatures of desire. And when, we've, when we have our desires realized, it's because we're trying to feel alive. But what James says is that's the way sin will get you. Sin never gives you life. It always robs you of it. At first, it's promising everything. But in the end, what does it give you? you know, I'm so proud of my daughter, Jordan. I've been telling you she's really gotten on this fitness kick. But then she has cheat days. And for the last, you know, Sundays are cheat day. We cheat together. 
And she has been cheating like crazy. On Sunday, she goes completely bananas. But last, last week, she goes, Dad, I think I'm going to take it easy on my next cheat day. Because what she realized was even though it felt great to finally eat the stuff she wanted to eat all week, she felt gross going to bed. She's like, I don't think I enjoy it the way I used to. And that's the way it works. You swear it's going to make you happy, and for a minute it does. But in the end, what it brings forth in your life is always going to be death. Like that U2 song, sweet the taste, sweet the sin, bitter the taste in my mouth. For a moment, what, what is that that they say for dieting? A moment on the lips, an eternity on the hips, right? But that's just the way sin is. The pleasure is so intense for a second, and then you've got to deal with the weight and the baggage and the negative consequence for a really long time. Nobody has sinned their way to a fuller life. No one. It has never worked that way. And what James is saying as a favor to us is wake up. You always sin in the pursuit of feeling more alive, but you never end up more alive, do you? You always end up seeing everything you really care about die. Sin will kill everything over time. It will kill your marriage, your friendships, your relationships with family and friends. It will even kill your career and your very self. Your body will pay a huge price for sin that is left unrestrained. Sin kills. It steals life. It brings forth death. So that if your over-desire left unrestrained gives birth to sin, if sin is the child of over-desire, death is its grandchild. That's just the way it works. And so I am now just simply echoing James's admonition. I know we all want to feel alive, but we're not always wise in how we pursue that desire. And maybe what's killing you doesn't feel like it's killing you yet. But let me tell you, sometimes we die a very slow death, neglecting the things that make us truly come to life. We've been saying all along in this James series that there's no such thing as a trial-free life. Every one of us is going to face trouble. And every time we face trials, there's a fork in the road, and one of two things will happen. We will pass that test, and our faith will grow because we realize it's real, it's substantial, it's really there. God does live. He is with us and for us. And the test will make us stronger, or we'll take the other turn in the road, And we'll begin to shake our fists at God. We'll become bitter and cynical and wonder, why me? Why me? And our faith will weaken as we take that course. Sin is no laughing matter. If you leave it unrestrained, it will steal from you everything you care about. Some of you are already experiencing that right now because you are not restraining this thing. And you don't realize it, but some of us, I'm convinced of this. I can say this in every church I visit, really. Some married people in this room, your marriage is already half dead and you don't know it. The person's still got their ring on. You still live in the same building. 
But unrestrained sin is going to cost you your marriage. Because the life you set out to build together is not at all the life you have now. And you've got to retreat into fantasies and other diversions just to feel a little bit of the life you once hoped for when you got married. It's going to cost some of us our jobs. It's going to cost some of us our pulse, our heartbeat, our very life. People die every day because sin grabs hold of them and it doesn't let go. So I'll end with this. What do we do in the face of this over-desire? I mean, if we're going to blame God, it's only because it feels so powerful we don't have any ability to fight it, do we? We've made good starts every January 1st. We swear to ourselves, I just did it at the start of this sermon. This week, so help me God, I'm going to sleep before midnight. I, I fell asleep at around 4.30 last night. It's not right. It's not normal. I decide today I'm going to sleep by midnight. What if those are just famous last words? What if I can't do it? What if I dig deep and it's not there? Traditionally, what we've taught in the church all over the world is this. Just say no. You're a mouse. There's a cheese. And you just go, just say no. But a mouse can't say no forever to cheese. Cheese is so good to a mouse. You have an over-desire, a distorted want somewhere inside of you that will not just hear the word no forever. And so that's why I don't think just say no is enough. Now, it's something. Because sin is being fed all the time. Don't discount the powerful impact your diet has on your soul. I think some of us need to go on a soul diet. Stop feeding it with flirtations and fantasies and entertainments that are fueling that sin in us. So I I, I do agree, learning to say no is part of the battle. But if that's all we say, we have not served people very well, have we? Because just saying no will only take you so far. In the end, I believe that the, the true victory over sin doesn't come in saying no, but in saying yes. Don't walk out of the room now. You're going you're gonna to walk out with a very distorted message. He said, say yes to sin. No. I, I love the way the Scottish minister, Thomas Chalmers, who lived maybe 250 years ago, here's what he wrote. The only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it a more beautiful object. That's so true. We cannot say to ourselves, I don't want that thing because it's a lie. I want it more than I want anything until I find something more beautiful, more desirable than what I want. And that's the way everybody experiences any true life change. Have you ever seen a lazy person, a failure to launch, somebody who just can't ever seem to to take responsibility, hold a job, get up like a reasonable person on time, and then one day they suddenly grow up, and they're an adult, and like, what happened? At some point, they decided they want a different life more than they wanted to be comfortable and lazy. It's not that they hated who they were, but they found a picture more compelling than what they lived for, and it awakened something inside of them. I really believe that's the only way we ever change is when we stop just saying no to our lesser self, we start saying yes to something more beautiful. And I'm not talking about just the different us. 
I'm talking about that, that object of our heart's affection that's good enough, perfect enough to hold that affection forever. The only worthy object of that deep affection of our hearts is the one who saved us. I don't think we're ever going to win our battle with sin until we fall truly in love with Jesus Christ. Because until then, you don't have a greater love to compete with that over-desire in your heart. I think this is ultimately the gospel, is that in a world so full of distorted loves, the object of our truest, deepest, greatest love broke into our lives. And because we know him, we're beginning to change from the inside out. If that's true, then it matters a great deal how intentionally we pursue him and look for him every day. Because you only see what you look for. If you're not looking for him, you won't see him. Jesus doesn't shout to get our attention. He just stands at the door and knocks. Not like, he just... If you're not looking for him, you're going to miss him. Let's be honest, for some of us, this place, this hour, is the only time in the week we significantly pay attention to Jesus Christ. That's not enough. If this is the only Jesus fix you have all week, your soul is starving. You have no chance. You're not going to make it. Because all those other loves surround you every day. They're going to win the battle for your heart. Look for him. You look for him, you're going to see him, and you're going to realize he's more beautiful than everything else that is tugging at you. Why don't we bow in prayer? Ever since I was young, I grew up in church traditions where I was taught over and over and over again, fight, fight! Fight. Maybe it's an Asian thing, but it's like they're telling me to be a black belt, a ninja, and fighting sin. And what I kept saying is, I think I'm a wuss because I can't do it. I try. I get a couple good punches in. But in the end, I just kept losing. I just couldn't do it. I wasn't changing. I felt like a liar, a fake. And then I started thinking, maybe everyone else is also a liar and a fake. Maybe they're not doing as good as they act like they're doing. Because if I have so much trouble changing... Maybe no one really changes. Maybe this is all a big show. Maybe this is all fake and everyone's pretending. And then at the age of 24, I felt like I actually met Jesus Christ. It messed me up forever. I've never been the same since that period of my life. I had been a Christian for some time But I didn't see Jesus in that light until I turned 24. And seeing him even once in that light has wrecked me forever. It was then that I finally began to change. Really change from the inside out. Because finally my heart found the object of its greatest love. So that's my invitation to you today.
can't just keep saying no to the stuff you love. You've got to learn to say yes to someone who's truly lovely, truly worthy. That's the Jesus I hope you meet in the days that you walk with us at this church. It's the Jesus I hope we present to you every Sunday. So what, let's bow together and let's just acknowledge, God, I have to see Jesus. I don't have a fighting chance if I don't see him this way. So please, Lord Jesus, show yourself to me. Let me see in you someone more beautiful than every other thing that grips my heart. I don't want to fake it anymore. I want to see you. Let's just say that to the Lord this morning together in prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.